0: Gracious Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you on this Sabbath afternoon. We are living close to the end. We do not know how close, but it's closer than anybody has ever lived before. And it is time for revival and reformation within the church, within our own hearts. It's time that we are becoming prepared in reality to be among the 144,000 that are to to go through to the end. Lord, I pray that your rich spirit will hover over this congregation this afternoon and that thy blessings might attend the reading of your word and that each one of us might understand more fully the need for revival and reformation, how that we can work to bring it about. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 4, to start with. Ezekiel 9, verses 1 to 4, a text that we should be acquainted with. It's a text that applies in a special way to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It says he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying let those who have charge over the city draw near each with a deadly weapon in his hands. And suddenly six, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north each with a battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with a linen and a, had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. It has always been interesting to me that there were that it took six people To do the the axing, we might say, to do the chopping, only one to do the sealing. There must have been a lot more work for the people that were, were doing the cleansing. Isn't that right? Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub. That's just before the close of probation. That only happens one time in earth's history. This prophecy applies to the Adventist church in a special way. Some prophecies apply back in Israel's day as well as today. And there might be a secondary application back then. But I can tell you, there's only one time in earth's history when the glory of the Lord leaves His place in the most holy place from between the cherubim. Isn't that right? And here the the Lord has come and He's come to the threshold of the door just before leaving the most holy place. We're going to talk a little bit more about this tomorrow morning on the close of probation. And um, it says, He called to the man with a, clothed with a linen, who had the writer's ink horn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. I want you to notice, and we'll look at this more fully tomorrow morning, that the sealing takes place while the church is in a state of corruption before the shaking. If you're waiting for the church to be purified in order to have an experience, you've waited too long. The sealing takes place before the shaking takes place. Isn't that what the verse says? And notice the the sealing mark is put on those people who are not nice, people that are just sitting in their pews doing nothing. It is put on those who are sighing and crying for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So he began with the elders who were before the temple. Dear friend, today is never before it is time for revival and a reformation because people are deciding their eternal destiny. We may never be able to accomplish a general revival and reformation until after it's too late for most people. But dear friend, whatever amount of revival and reformation we can bring we can be used by the Lord to bring about in the church today. It is time today to do it. Even if there's only one soul saved, it'll be worth it. Amen. Amen. Souls today are making their decision for, for eternal life or eternal death. And uh, when the shaking comes, it's too late. It's too late. Those who are sealed have already been Sealed. I hope that each one will be here tomorrow as we look at this subject in depth. I read from Selected Messages, Volume 1, 121 and 128. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. What's our greatest need? Revival. To seek this should be our first work. A revival and reformation must take place under the administration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and Reformation are two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. They They must blend together. Well, today, God is calling for a change. He is not calling for a covering up of uh, things that are happening. He is, for a, he is calling for someone to begin to work for revival and reformation. I read in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, page 283 and 284, It says, just as long as God has a church, He will have those who cry aloud and spare not, who will be His instruments to reprove selfishness and sins. I should start a paragraph before that, actually. Sins exist in the church that God hates, but they are scarcely touched for fear of making enemies. Opposition has arisen in the church to the plain testimony. Some will not bear it. They wish smooth things spoken unto them. And if the wrongs of individuals are touched, they complain of severity and sympathize with those in the wrong. As Ahab inquired of Elijah, Art thou he who troubles Israel? They are ready to look with suspicion and doubt upon those who bear the plain testimony, and like Ahab, overlook the wrong which made it necessary for reproof and rebuke. When the church depart from God, they despise the plain testimony. And they complain of severity and harshness. This is a sad evidence of the lukewarm state of the church. But just as long as God has a church, He'll have those who will cry aloud and spare not, who will be His instruments to reprove selfishness and sins, and will not shun to declare the whole counsel of God, whether men will hear or forbear. I saw that individuals would rise up against the plain testimonies. It does not suit their natural feelings. They would choose to have smooth things spoken to them and have peace cried in their ears. I view the church in a more dangerous condition than it has ever been before. Experimental religion is known but by few. The shaking must soon take place to purify the church. Sins exist in the church that God hates. And it is, they are scarcely touched for fear of making enemies. But um, we are told that unless this message is given that there will be no life in the church. I read over in the next page it says preachers should have no scruples to preach the truth as it is found in God's word. Let the truth cut. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Everyone says, you know, we want I can remember my conference president in one of my conferences that I've served I've served in several. It was when Desmond Ford's uh, doctrine was going around when he was still in the church, but it was during Glacier View time when uh, people were questioning the things that he was saying. Conference president said, "We don't want to discuss anything about Desmond Ford in this conference, either for him or against him. But people believe what he says. That's just leave things alone." He says, "We have a smooth conference. We don't want any, we don't want any trouble in this conference. We want, we want a smooth-running ship." I want to tell you that is, that is the norm, actually. That is not unusual. That's the norm. I've had two different conference presidents tell me that they put people on the conference executive committee because they were troublemakers in the conference and they wanted to appease them and get them on the right side so that they would quit making trouble. That's an interesting way of management. But that is the norm also, by the way. It says, I have been shown that why ministers have not more success. And I want to tell you our ministers are not having success today. If you want to look at the souls that are coming into the church, there's little success today in the ministry. Why ministers have not more success is they are afraid of hurting feelings, fearful of not being courteous, and they lower the standard of truth. Well, God is calling preachers today to preach boldly. He's calling laymen to speak out. He is looking for a revival and a reformation. Now, of course, one reason that preachers don't speak out more is that they are afraid if they speak out, they may lose their job. Well, they'll be shipped off to some small church first. And if that doesn't work, eventually they may lose their jobs well, so be it. You know, I say this, let's just do what God wants us to do and leave the results with Him. We don't have anything to hold on to, do we? The time may very well come when people do lose their jobs. I read in 5T, page uh, 77, that the time may come when in fact all true preachers are not in the true pre- there aren't any more true preachers in the pulpit anymore. Their time may come. That doesn't mean God's not going to have a church, but the preachers of God may not be in the pulpits anymore. I read, in fact, before reading that statement, maybe I should read one over on in uh, page um, one testimony, page three twenty one. It says, in this fearful time, just before Christ is to come the second time, God's faithful preachers will have to bear a still more pointed testimony than when it was born by John the Baptist. I don't know how anyone can preach straighter than John, but that's what we're told that they must do. If you read John's message, you'll know that, I don't know how you can get straighter than that, but we're told that God's true messengers will have to preach a straighter message even than John did before the days. Now, it may be out beside the Jordan where they're preaching, just like John's was. It may not. John didn't preach in the synagogues. He wasn't allowed. But wherever it has to be, this message has to be given today. A responsible, important work is before them, and those who speak smooth things God will not acknowledge as His shepherds. Now, mankind may acknowledge them. I mean, she's talking about preachers who are receiving the tithe and who are preaching in the churches and who are holding offices, but she says God doesn't recognize them as a preacher. In fact, the next sentence says, a fearful woe is upon them. That's the last pl- seven last plagues that are going to fall on them, you see. I have long since, I, of course, being in the ministry, I have friends in the ministry, many, many friends, you know, I don't believe, I believe that we should not, uh, we look at ministers, even ministers who are preaching smooth sermons, they're not to be despised, they are to, to be pitied, dear friends. They're to be pitied. I tell you, the worst possible place to be in the last days is to be in the Adventist pulpit, pe- preaching a smooth message. God's fearful woe is upon these dear people, and they do not know it. They do not know it. And I don't, I don't uh, have one bit of grudgery toward one preacher. I feel sorry for the souls that are being lost. My heart bleeds for, for the thousands of people that are being lost because of these smooth, tame messages. But I feel sorry for the messengers. They do not know what is up ahead shortly. But nevertheless, according to prophecy... We're going to see more and more uh, unfaithfulness in the pulpit. We're not going to see less, we're going to see more. You know, some people are expecting things to get better and better until the church is ready for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what I used to think. But inspiration tells us it may be just the opposite. And actually, when the Holy Spirit is being poured out on some people, most of the people won't even know it. I read in uh, five testimonies, page 77, a most startling statement. I think I read this here last year. I'll read it again. Who knows whether God will not give you up to the deceptions you love? Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel of peace to our unthankful churches? It may be that the destroyers are already training under the hand of Satan. Paul called them wolves in sheep's clothing. Ellen White said destroyers. These are people whom Satan himself is training. And what is he training them for? It may be that the destroyers are already training under the hand of Satan and only wait the departure of a few more standard bearers, that's the preachers and the leaders, to take their places. She says it may be soon that the places of all the faithful and true preachers are replaced by preachers who have been trained by Satan himself. Now, uh, dear friend, that's the spirit of prophecy I'm reading. And you know what they will preach? You know what their message will be? And with the voice of the false prophet, cry, Peace, peace, when the Lord has not spoken peace. I want to tell you, those people who preach peace when there is no peace are the destroyers of the flock, not those who are giving the straight testimony. If you want to look over the churches of Europe and England and America today, you'll find that these churches have been destroyed and they've not been destroyed by those who are preaching the straight message. In the state of Kansas that I'm from, in the very... Heart of America, in the very middle of America, in 1903, and that's when people were moving out west. That's when Kansas had only about three, uh, two million people. Today they have about three. They've grown about half again as much. But back then we had 100 Adventist churches, 170 Adventist churches in the state of Kansas. Today, 86 years later, Rather, those statistics are from the SDA Encyclopedia. I think that was 1897. 1897, 19. Anyway, right at the turn of the century. Today, nearly 90 years later, we have 54 churches. Almost half the churches have been literally destroyed right off the map. And the churches that are left are in a sad condition, I'll tell you. These are destroyers, those people who cry peace, peace, when the Lord has not spoken peace. If you had watchmen on the city gates and the armies of Babylon were coming to the city and they cried all this peace and safety and left the gates of the city open for the army to march right in, what would those people be? They'd be destroyers of the city, wouldn't they? Yes. And that's what we have today. I'll tell you, Babylon has marched right into the church and no one's closed the gates. Amen. No one said anything. No one's given a warning call. Everything is peace, peace. The next uh, sentence says, When God shall work His strange work on the earth, when holy hands bear the ark no longer, woe will be upon the people. Could the time come when holy hands bear the ark no longer? It could come. In five testimonies, page uh, 210-212. This is in this little book too, but I'll just read it from here since I'm more acquainted with, with it in here. Ellen White goes on to describe the church right before Jesus comes. I'm telling you, that's when we're living. We are seeing it happen today. She talks about how that uh, every country and every church is being weighed in the balances and uh, how that godliness is being lost. She says, At the time when the danger and depression of the church are greatest, the little company... Oh, I should start reading a little sooner. That which causes me to tremble is the fact that those who have had the greatest light and privileges have become contaminated with the prevailing iniquity. Influenced by the unrighteous among them, even many even of those who profess the truth have grown cold and are borne down by the strong current of evil. The universal scorn thrown upon true piety and holiness leads those who do not connect closely with God to lose their reverence for His law. If they were following the light and obeying the truth from the heart, this holy law would even more, be even more precious to them when thus despised and set aside. As the disrespect for God's law becomes more manifest, a line of demarcation between its observers and the world becomes more distinct. Love for the precepts increases with one class according to as contempt for them increases with another class. So there's going to be two classes of people. One class reverence the law more. Another class set the law aside and begin to preach grace and these kind of things as though no one can keep the law and it's not necessary. Do we find this happening in the church today? At the time when the danger and depression of the church are the greatest, the little company who are standing in the light will be sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. How big a company? A little company. But more especially will their prayers arise in behalf of the church because its members are doing after the manner of the world. And then she quotes from Ezekiel that we just read, Go Through the Mist of the City, and she comments on this. These sighing, crying ones have been holding forth the words of life. They have reproved, counseled, and entreated some who had been dishonoring God repented and humbled their hearts before Him. But, and I, I have read the testimonies be th- through before, but until I was reading this page here a few months ago, somehow I didn't remember this one little sentence here. It says, But the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. Could the time come when the glory of the Lord departs from Israel? That's not the end of the sentence, however. However, That would be one thing. The rest of the sentence goes on. Although many still continued the forms of religion, His power and presence were lacking. So people are still going on, playing church. They're still holding church offices, raising money, having church elections and preaching and Sabbath school and and reports and all the rest. All the forms of religion are continuing, but God's presence is lacking. And the glory of the Lord is departed from Israel. In the time when His wrath shall go forth in judgments, these humble, devoted followers of Christ will be distinguished from the rest of the world by their soul anguish, which is expressed in lamentation and weeping, reproofs and warnings, while others try to throw a cloak over the existing evil and excuse the great wickedness everywhere prevalent. You know, there's evil in the church, I know, but there's always been problems. Look at the good things. Just focus on the good things. Don't look at the bad well, I think there's danger in just always looking the bad. We'll become like what we look upon. But there is a place to recognize the need for revival and reformation, is there not? Those who have a zeal for God, while others try to throw a cloak over the existing evil, those who have a zeal for God's honor and a love for souls will not hold their peace to obtain favor of any. Now... You will not obtain favor of any. You will become the off-scouring of the earth and of the church leaders and of the church general. Their righteous souls are vexed day by day with the unholy works and conversation of the unrighteous. Yet they are powerless to stop the rushing torrent of iniquity. It's just like a dam breaks and, and all iniquity just flows in. You know, I was talking with my brother the other day, not thinking of this, but it fits right in some few months ago, I guess. And we were mentioning, it's just like a few years ago. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But two or three years ago, somewhere along there, two or three or four years ago, it's just like all of a sudden a dam broke and everything is broken loose. I tell you, the church is on a downhill slide towards worldliness such as we have never seen before. On every angle. I mean... I went to academy in the early 60s. And the church was, uh, it was a different place. We weren't ready for the Lord to come then. But it was a different, a different church then than it is today. I'll tell you, it was a different church then than it is today. Different standards, different thinking, different activities, different preaching. The things that people can preach today, they could never have gotten by with preaching 20, 30 years ago. They are powerless to stop stop the rushing torrent of iniquity, and hence they are filled with grief and alarm. They mourn before God to see religion despised in the very homes of those who've had great light. They lament and afflict their souls because, and listen to these four things, pride, avarice, that's love for money, selfishness, and deception of almost every kind are in the church. The Spirit of God, which prompts to reproof, is trampled underfoot while the servants of Satan triumph. Dear friend, if you're looking for God's message to triumph, if you think that God is using Hope International, for example, and you have any idea that they might triumph, don't hold your breath. Because this says that the servants of Satan are going to triumph in the church. Now, I tell you, I pray I pray every day. No, I don't pray every day. I pray regularly when I think about it, quite often, for uh, the 1990 General Conference. Uh, we pray in our office for the 1990 General Conference every so often. And I, I just hope that there is the greatest revival and reformation we've ever imagined. But I'm not holding my breath. I, don't, I hope it doesn't happen. But I'll tell you, I will not be surprised if it's not the greatest landslide toward worldliness we've ever seen at any one time in earth's history, in the church, and in the history of the church. I'm not looking for anything great to come about it, come from it. Too many things have been stacked against revival and reformation. Until almost, it is almost, you know, worldliness is almost taken hold. Um, it says, the servants of Satan triumph. God is dishonored and the truth is made of none effect. Now, listen to this, however. It sounds pretty bleak, maybe. But, you know, it is, it are, it is these experiences that make us who are faithful and true by God's grace, if we are faithful and true, make those who are faithful and true, it gets them ready to go through the time of trouble and ready for Jesus to come. God doesn't want there to be iniquity in the church. God wants a pure and clean church. But since He does not have a pure and clean church, it still works out for His glory for those who remain true because they have to learn to stand alone for the Lord. The next sentence says, The class who do not feel grieved over their own spiritual declension, nor mourn over the sins of others, will be left without the seal of God. I'll tell you, dear friend, if there's anything I don't want to happen, is to be left without God's seal. I mean, why go on playing religion only to be lost in the end? Just go out to Las Vegas or someplace and gamble your life away and try to enjoy what you have. If you're, if you're going to be lost anyway, why, you know, go ahead and go to the beach on Sabbath morning and mow your lawn and put your nose to the grindstone and try to enjoy that kind of a lifestyle if you're not going to be saved anyway? You know, why go through, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's, I enjoy religion myself. I, I think it's the greatest uh, thing there is. But nevertheless, Paul, as Paul said, why, why go through the motion, any motions, if you're not going to be saved anyway? Why go to church? Go to the nightclub. Right. You know? Why, why do it if you're not going to be saved anyway? The Lord commissions His messengers, the men of slaughter, with slaughtering weapons in their hands. Go you after Him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you any pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children, women, but come not near anyone upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men who were before the house. Here we see that the church, God's sanctuary, was the first to feel the stroke of the wrath of God. Won't it be something to see the plagues coming down? You know, the seven last plagues. And lo and behold, they rest on the church first. Won't that be startling? And here it's God's church. And here they are the ones who are being under the judgment of God. The ancient men, those whom God had given great light and who had stood as guardians of the spiritual interests of the people, had betrayed their trust. They had taken the position that we need not look for miracles and mark manifestations of God's powers in former days. Times have changed, they said. I mean, God may have burned down Battle Creek back then, but He's not going to do anything now. All we have to do is vote it through and it will be Okay. These words strengthen their unbelief, and they say the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. He's too merciful to visit his people in judgment. Thus peace and safety, this is page 211 now of 5T. Thus peace and safety is a cry from men who will never again lift up their voice like a trumpet to show God's people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. These dumb dogs that would not bark are the ones who feel the just vengeance of an offended God. Men, women, little children all perish together. I don't usually read this much. I'm not a reader. I'm more of a preacher. But I can't say these words, you see. These words are so strong, it takes a prophet to say them. Just another couple sentences here. The abominations for which the faithful ones were sighing and crying were all that could be discerned by finite eyes, but by far the worst sins... Those which provoke the jealousy of the pure and holy God were unrevealed. The great searcher of hearts knows every sin committed in secret by the workers of iniquity. It says, for all that can be seen, and there's plenty that can be seen, what cannot be seen is far worse than anything that can be seen. I'll tell you, dear friends, we are fulfilling prophecy. Like it or not, we're fulfilling Prophecy. I was doing a little retrospecting, and I don't I don't like to get too specific in sermons. Actually, when I preach in uh, my church, the churches, I'm always preaching for both Adventists and non-Adventists. You have to cover things up with parables like Jesus did when you deal with things, because I'm preaching to get people to accept the truth. And I hope there's lots of non-Adventists always. But sometimes these special convocations we can... Maybe get a little bit more specific, and maybe we should sometimes. I never used to, but the time is coming when we need to look at things plainly. Not in a critical matter, but in, in a call for revival and reformation. To be, to be honest with ourselves. I was reading, here, I'm up on page uh, 1051 of uh, 1888. It says, the true state of the church is to be presented before men. That's the counsel of the Lord. The true state of the church is to be presented before men. It's not to be covered up. Those who cover things up and put a cloak over them are those who receive the just vengeance of uh, the retribution of an offended God. Amen. I mean, if you go into see a doctor and you have some terminal illness that he can cure and he says, oh, I don't want to offend you, I think you're okay. You go home and enjoy yourself. I'm telling you, when that person dies, the spouse would sue the doctor, right? They'd be offended. they said, listen, you mean you didn't want to hurt my husband's feelings? And you let him die, and now I have here, I have to raise these kids myself, and I have to go to work, and, and I don't have my husband, and you could have saved him, but just simply because you didn't want to offend somebody's feelings, you let him die? I think it's time that we start looking at ourselves, don't you? Because there's a, there's a bomb in Gilead, there's a cure that can cure these things if we'll see them. We'll see our need. But I was thinking over some of the things in the church, how it used to be. I didn't grow up in England, so I can't tell you how it used to be in England, but I can tell you how it used to be in America. I can remember when I grew up as a boy in the state of Washington and lived in Tennessee for a while, then grew up most of my time in Colorado. There was a difference, for example, in the dress of Adventists compared to non-Adventists. I can remember we'd be on vacation or up in the mountains or someplace, and we'd see somebody, and uh, there was something different about them, because they didn't have all of the ornaments of the world on, and they weren't dressed like the world. And we would wonder, are they Adventists? Sometimes we'd be bold enough to ask uh, if they are Adventists. Usually they were. Usually they were. You don't see that distinction anymore in America. There's no distinction whatsoever between the dress of an Adventist and a non-Adventist. If you see somebody that's dressed plainly today, you say, I wonder if they're a Mennonite in America. You probably don't have Mennonites here. I wonder if they're something, you see. Now, I want to tell you, I'm not blaming our... Adventist people. They have never been taught, most of them. Many of them have come into the church in the last five or ten years and they have never been told anything. I mean, they're sincere in heart, some of these people. We should not look look with askance on, on people who don't know better. We had a sermon in our church in the in the largest church in Wichita, 700-member church, I guess it's 650 now, here just two weeks ago, and somebody gave me the tape, the conference, the union, union evangelist, who's holding a series of meetings. And he was sharing how that we're not saved by the way we dress or don't dress. He said, this isn't a part of the gospel. He said, we're saved by Jesus. It all sounds good, doesn't it? And we shouldn't be sharing with these people these kind of things that used to make us different from the world. Well, they come in, they don't know. They've never heard, you know. They come in, they're baptized, and they're admitted to the church. We're here to love and to educate. But I'm telling you, something has happened. For whatever the reason, for whatever the cause, something has happened, at least in the churches in America, in this regard. I think of the diet. in the same sermon he spent about 20 minutes berating the fanaticism almost except he didn't use that word but berating vegetarianism now i don't say that you know that everyone who hasn't gained the victory over diet is lost by any means that's not my message God is leading us step by step. He does tell us, however, that those who make up the 144,000 are all going to cease the use of flesh foods because as God's spirit withdraws from the earth, disease is going to increase more and more, and those who are serving God are going to come more and more in line with, with our thinking. It's not a matter of being saved by what you eat, um, and the Lord is leading us each step by step. And flesh is only one aspect. Well, He went beyond flesh. He mentioned coffee. On how that uh, He says we're not saved by whether we drink or. Coffee or not, it was in his 11 o'clock message. He said, we're saved by Jesus. Not by whether we drink coffee or not. Well, dear friend, we're not saved by whether we keep the Sabbath or not, are we? I mean, we're not saved by whether we murder people or not, are we? Are we saved because we don't murder someone? Might as well go murder someone, right? Since that's not what saves us. But you know, many people, they just drink all this in. They drink it in. Itching ears, you know. They hear what they have, what they want to hear. He then began on the spirit of prophecy. This is all in one sermon. He mentioned how his uh, daughter and son, little Melinda, they got in with this group who began to try to follow everything the spirit of prophecy says. Can you imagine such a fanatical group? I don't know who it was. It could have been a fanatical group. There are fanatics around. But nevertheless, that's, he said, he, that's what he mentioned. He told them if they kept up, they are going to leave everything, eventually. And they, after a while, they followed this lifestyle for a while. And his daughter came upon this book by Ray. I forget what his first name is. But anyway, he wrote a book against the spirit of prophecy. And um, sure enough, she saw she'd made some mistakes, and so she left everything. He said... It's at 11 o'clock. And so he said, Ellen White made lots of mistakes. He said, we should be reading the Bible more. And he pointed up the Bible and said, you know, Ellen White said, this is the book we're to read. <laughs> you know, there's something happening, isn't it? Something happening. And then he boastingly said, oh, I don't, shouldn't say boastingly, that might be judgmental, but anyway, it's part of his argument." He said the latest statistics in the church show that 70% of Adventists um, are not vegetarian, eat, eat flesh. That was to show that we don't need to, because most people don't. Well, something's happened. Now, when I grew up, there weren't a lot of people that were really strong health reformers, but at least we tried to make a pretense... We weren't quite so bold about it. I think of the area of... um, other areas, though, that go far beyond vegetarianism. A recent study that was done with one of our largest North American colleges, one of our largest colleges in North America, a survey among the students revealed that 67% of the students... Were drinking alcohol in a college of over a thousand, Seventh day Adventist College, over 60, it was 66 point something, just under 67 for 66 percent of our students are, are drinking alcoholic beverages. The review was going to publish the study, but when they found how high it was, they decided not to publish it, it was too high to publish. They did publish something on it, but they didn't give the statistics. They said there were a lot of people. What college? What college? That was Walla Walla. Sorry? Walla Walla. Now, you know, there were a lot of young people back when I was in college that, that weren't doing what they should. But 66%, dear friends, that's over, that is a majority. That's a majority. We're not talking about 5% and 10%. I mean, there was a day when if there was somebody down the hall drinking, that was drinking, or was found drunk, you know, that was major news. You might have 2 or 3 or 5 or 6%. We're not talking about little stuff anymore, 5 and 10%. When you get to 66%, you're talking about major numbers. Something has happened. These are the future leaders of our church, and some of these people are in theology class they are going to be pastoring our churches tomorrow. And it's not just in the colleges, dear friends. I don't know if as many people go to academy. In the United States, there was a time when all Adventist people went to academies, never to public high schools. That's changing now. But uh, in our academies, Boarding academies. It's gone beyond just alcohol. It's gone to marijuana and cocaine and some of these other things. It is coming in by it's coming in to our young people. I think of movies. You know, when I grew up back in the '50s, I was born in 47. I can remember very well the 50s. It was an unheard of thing for an Adventist to go to a movie. I mean, that was just not heard of. Not in America. Probably not here either. No one ever went to a movie. That wasn't heard of. Now, after a while, we heard some reports. There was one or two in California that went to movies. You know, down in... Southern California someplace, or somebody someplace, that, you know there's a, a real story. Did you know that there's people down in Southern California that go to movies? Why the church is apostatized in Southern California, you see? It's always California. But I want to tell you today the things that people watch on their videos are far worse than any they were showing in the movie houses back in the fifties. And they're right in our Adventist home among our elders and our pastors. And the others that are watching these movies. Immorality. Immorality has taken over our young people in our colleges. It used to be that in the colleges in the world, you know, most young people had experiences in in, uh, relationships with one another before they got married, I want to tell you, most of our Adventist people are in that same condition today. We are where the world was 10 or 15 years ago today. We may not be quite up with them, but we're trailing behind pretty good. We're not far behind. And it's come right on up into the ministry. Well, I don't like to look at these things. But somehow we need to have our eyes open to see that something has happened in the church today. And probably more than any of those things, the thing that is, that to me is the most unbelievable event that has happened today is when our church, not just these other things of worldliness and and, uh, apostasy come into the church, but when our church begins to make an image to the beast, I say something has happened that calls for revival and reformation. You know, the definition of an image of the beast in great controversy is when that when the church and state unite to enforce religious dogma or to restrict the, exercise, the free exercise of religion and religious conviction by boycott and persecution and lawsuits... That is making an image to the beast. Is not that the definition of making an image to the beast? The union of church and state for the enforcement of religious dogma and the restriction of religious liberty? That's what the image of the beast is. And we can take people because they believe they have a religious conviction that they are to call themselves Seventh-day Adventists. And we can take them to law, to court, and try to throw them in jail because we have... Because we don't agree with that religious conviction. We are are standing on dangerous ground, dear friends. The spirit of prophecy has some powerful things to say about lawsuits. Brethren suing brethren and going to the courts of law. But I mean, we're not going to the courts of law over money. We're going to the courts of law because of religious conviction and to repress religious conviction, dear friends to persecute those who are following their religious convictions. You know, somehow I always expected this to take place by the union of, of apostate Protestantism with Catholicism. Never did I expect it to be the Seventh-day Adventist church that led out in making an image to the beast. I never dreamed of such a thing. Never did I expect there to be a union of apostate Adventism with Catholicism with Catholic lawyers and all the rest, to try to persecute our people. Never did I expect to see the Adventist church taking our people to court. Oh, I thought that there would be apostate Adventists who had left the church, you know, and were no longer Adventists. They were Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, or something. Former Adventists taking our people to court. I never thought it would be our Adventist people themselves. Did you? Was I in the dark someplace? I was in the dark. Maybe everyone else wasn't, but I sure was. Today, God is looking for revival and reformation. He is displeased with what's happening. Ellen White says, The Lord has a controversy with his people. I was reading this. Maybe you've read this before in one testimony. It says, I dreamed that I was in Battle Creek looking out from the side glass at the door and saw a company marching up to the house two by two. They looked stern and determined. I knew them well and turned to open the parlor door to receive them. But thought I'd look again. The scene was changed. The company was now company now presented the appearance of a catholic procession. She's talking about leaders of the battle of, of the general conference here back in her day. And they looked like a catholic procession. One bore his in his hand a cross. That's the that's the Oh, what do they call that? Crucifix. Well, they have a crucifix, but they also have uh, something else. I can't say it right now anyway. One bore in his hand a cross, another a reed. And as they uh, approached, the one carrying a reed made a circle around the house saying three things. This house is prescribed. You see, this is um, uh, in the Catholic Church. They take some books and they put an imprimatur on and other books are prescribed. These, you can, these magazines you can read and these you shouldn't read, you know. These works you can hear. These you shouldn't hear. These preachers you can hear. These you shan't hear. You shouldn't hear. This house is prescribed. The goods must be confiscated. They have spoken against our holy order. I found myself in the midst of a company, some of whom I knew, but I dared not speak a word for fear of being betrayed. That was the most singular vision that I can think of that Ellen White had. And during friends, we are seeing it happen. It is time for revival and reformation. We have fallen to the lowest ebb that we have ever been in before. Is it not a time for a concern? Is it not a time for our dear layman to be raising their voice? Is the church not suffering from a want of godliness and from a From the presence of the Holy Spirit, do we not see that God's Spirit has departed from us as never before? We need a reformation. And many people know that we need a reformation. Many people are praying for reformation. Why then don't we have a reformation? Do you know why we don't see any reformation taking place? Because a reformation costs something. It costs too much. You see, it takes reformers to bring about a reformation. It doesn't just take praying. I think of Elijah. He was praying for a reformation and praying for a reformation. He preached pretty. He prayed pretty boldly. He says, "Lord," he said, um, "withhold, stop, bring a curse on this church so that we can wake up." He said, "Stop the rain. Stop our temporal prosperity. Stop the offerings." Stop the tithe. Stop everything. Just stop it. Bring a famine so that people can wake up and see where they are. God came down and touched Elijah on the shoulder and he said, Elijah, go give that message you've been praying for. He says, me? Lord, I'm happy just to keep on praying. God says, no, you're the one. You go give that message now. And so he went. Did it cost him something? I want to tell you, he became an outlaw. He became an outlaw. His life was hunted. And even after three and a half years, when he came back, there wasn't one man who was willing to stand with Elijah. Not one. He stood there all alone on Mount Carmel. Not a voice was raised in his defense. He was all alone. I think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist wanted a revival and reformation. Did it cost him something? It cost him his head. Jesus wanted a revival and reformation. It led him to the cross. I think of the reformers. They wanted a revival and reformation. It led them to the stake. But you know, dear friend, it took the stake to bring the reformation. There has never yet been a reformation without some martyrs. You see these priests during the dark ages. As they came with their long robes and their beads and they were stooped over maybe and they were counting their beads and they looked so pious, so pious. You know, some of them were up here in a monastery and they wouldn't speak all year long. They would just work there, you know. Work, work, work away for the Lord. They had given their lives to the Lord. They didn't even marry. They were totally pious people and they had all the people fooled. And they came, and they came to the confessionals, and they confessed their sins, and the priest blessed them. And when they got married, they went to the priest, and the priest performed the wedding. And when someone died, the priest came, and he buried them. And the priest was there when people had a heart were, had a heartache. The priest was there to comfort them. The priest was there for all these things, and he was always had clean fingernails. And he always had, his hair was always combed. And he, he had a an culture and an education. And the people reverenced the priest. But one day they went out to a field and here was a stack of wood burning with someone standing above it, tied to a pole. And this was a neighbor. Why, this neighbor had never done anything wrong as far as he knew. He had been a good man. And he was so kind. He had the love of Jesus in his heart. But there he was burning and pretty soon you could smell the flesh burning, cooking. And the hair was on flames and the clothes were burning and the flames were rising. And the people looked and they said, oh, that's so strange. What's wrong? But they saw the priest there, you know, counting their beads. I don't know what happened, but there must be something wrong. And a little doubt came in their minds. I wonder if there's something wrong here with the priest. But no, there can't be anything wrong with a priest. He was there when we were sick. He married us. And he always says his rosary, and he's always so neat and clean. He's so pious and humble. It can't be the priest. They can't be that bad. There must be something we don't know. The priest knows something we don't know. We got to trust the priest. And so they went along. But a few days later, they came along another pile of sticks, and there was somebody else they knew. They can the priest be wrong twice? This person, this young lady, she was a godly woman. She had the fear of the Lord. But there was a priest, you know, and they looked at the woman, they looked at the priest, they looked at the woman, they looked at the priest. They said, something's wrong. But the priest can't be wrong. There must be something about this lady we don't know about. Maybe she's a witch. We just don't know it. She's a witch. But you know, as the days went on, they saw this one burn and this one burn and this one burn. Pretty soon it brought about a reformation. But it took more than one martyr to bring about a reformation, it took millions of martyrs to bring a reformation. Dear friend, there's going to be no reformation in the church today without some people standing up and willing to lose their lives for the truth. You know, we want a reformation. We pray for a reformation. You know what God wants? He wants some reformers. We want a reformation. God wants some reformers. It takes some reformers to have a reformation. I wonder how many would like to pledge themselves to be reformers. You know, the time has come when no one can stand on the fence any longer. You have to go one way or the other. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, that he who is not with me is against me. Three Testimonies, 281. It says, if God abhors one sin above another of which his people are guilty. It is doing nothing in a case of an emergency. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. Those Jewish people back in Jesus' day who were neutral between Jesus and the high priest and who just took no position... They allowed Jesus to be crucified and never raised their voice. They weren't neutral. They were guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, it's time to get off center. It's time to get off the fence. It's time to get out of our state of neutrality. It's time that we are deciding that we are willing to go to be reformers no matter what it takes. Now, what does it take to be a reformer? It's time to quit, but I can't quit without making this practical. I'd like you to take out a piece of paper and pencil. Somebody says, what can I do? What can I practically do? What practical thing can I do to be a reformer? I'd like to look over six things that you can do. I only gave four in America, but I'm going to give six here. Six things, if you have a piece of paper and pencil, you know we only remember about between five and ten percent of the things we hear from a sermon, and uh, I'm quite sure that if <coughs> you, you probably won't remember most of what we've already covered, except maybe the general gesture of the theme, which I hope you do, but I'd like you to at least remember the things that we can do to bring about a reformation. We won't do it unless we write them down at least write down their main headings. The first thing we can do, I suppose you could figure out yourself, but let's write it down anyway because it's the first step and we can't have any other steps without the first step. And that is that we must read and study and live the Christian life ourselves. We must ourselves live a reformed life. We must learn to have devotions. You know, I set a goal to read the Spirit of Prophecy in the Bible no faster than I can comprehend and to try to do everything I read as I read it. Because I'll forget it tomorrow if I don't practice it today. I mean, I read something today and something tomorrow and something the next day and pretty soon I've read 50 things I should do and I'm not doing any of it. Why read them? Now, let's make sure that we compare Scripture to Scripture. We're not misunderstanding the, what the Lord says. Let's not go to extremes. Extreme is not following what the Lord says. Extreme is going beyond what the Lord says. That's what an extremist is. We can follow everything the Lord says and be perfectly safe. That's the only way we can be safe. But sometimes we need to compare Scripture to Scripture and make sure we understand what the Lord is saying. We don't take something out of context. It's very easy to take something out of context, isn't it? We don't want to take anything out of context. You know, we don't want to read where she says, to one man, you... Eat too much. And so we read it and we cut down what we eat. The next day we read it again we cut down again what we eat. Pretty soon we're down to half a meal a day and it still says we eat too much. So pretty soon we're not eating anything and we're still eating too much, you know. we got to read in context, don't we? we got to read sensibly. But dear friend, when we find out what God says and what He means, let's do what He says. What about that? I mean, why go on to read another page if we're not doing what the first page says? I'd rather have a Lutheran minister down here start reading the Bible through and when he comes to Exodus 20, comes the fourth commandment, I'd rather have him stop even if he doesn't get the Bible finished that year, spend two months on that text until he's following what it says and to just go on reading something else, wouldn't you? He'll he'll get far more out of obeying that one text than he will out of reading the Bible through 50 times if he's not obeying what it says. Let's do what it says. Let's learn to dress like Christians, to eat like Christians, to talk like Christians, to be Christians. That's number one. Number two, let's begin to pray for revival and reformation, like Elijah did. Now, I can't tell you what we should pray, but I'm telling you, we're in a crisis moment of Earth's history. Elijah read these promises, the Bible, where it says, If you go too far, God will withhold the rain. God says, Listen, here's your promise. God, please obey, fulfill what your promises are. They're called a curse. But, but, but um, Elijah says, This is a promise. This curse is a promise. It's a promise that if we go too far, you'll try to pull us back, even if it takes judgments in order to do it. It's time we begin to pray. Lord, whatever it takes, bring a revival and reformation. Even if you have to withhold the rain. whatever it takes, bring a revival and reformation to the church today. Number three. Begin to distribute revival and reformation books and papers. Sometimes books and papers can go where you can't. If you know someone that may be receptive, sign them up for the Firm Foundation. Have them start getting it month after month. This book, should. somebody in America asked for 50 copies of this. Numbers of people have asked for 10 copies to give to various friends. This book that Elder Spear just wrote on um, the voice of authority and some of the other books he, he's written, Will the Real Seventh-day Adventist Stand Up? Some of the books that the Stanish brothers have have written. And some of the others. Get these books into the people's homes. They're receptive. You ask for some of these, we'll send them to you. You want 10, 15, 20, whatever you want, we'll get them to you. If you use them. Now, The fourth thing we should do, we're getting a little bit more ticklish here, but the fourth thing that we must do is to speak up, dear friends. We must speak up. We must not be dumb dogs like Ellen White said, or some of our preachers are. We must not be dumb dogs. It's time that we speak up. God expects us to speak up. Oh, I wish I had a whole hour on this subject. Now there is time and place, you know. There is a place in a board meeting to speak up things that you don't stand up in the 11 o'clock service and speak up. I don't think that we ought to be standing up after the preacher gets done. That would just cause disrepute. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go into the sanctuary, and when the preacher got done, stand up and contradict him. Now, I'm not saying God won't move someone to do that sometime or someplace, but if He does, we better make sure it's the Lord doing it, not our impulsive nature. But, dear friend, there is a place to say something. I have people on church boards. They say, well, if I say something, I'll be the only one. Well, so what? Be the only one. There are only two in the, in the Sanhedrin. At least they spoke up. They didn't speak up enough. We find that Nicodemus, after it was all done and said, in The Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that Nicodemus realized he'd made a great mistake by not stepping out for the Lord, by trying to keep it a secret that he was a follower of the Lord. He thought, I'm doing a good work. I can stay in the the Sanhedrin. He made a mistake. Somebody says, "Uh, you know, if I speak up, I won't be on the board anymore. Well, so what? Nicodemus wasn't on the Sanhedrin after a while, and he lost his opportunities that he could have had while he was there. At least take the time while you're there to say something when something comes up to share your concerns. If you're an elder, and we might not have any elders left, but as long as there is an elder, there is an elder someplace. You know, if the preacher isn't preaching the truth, if he's preaching watered-down sermons, it's time to say in an elders' meeting that we don't... I would like to not have this preacher preach for us anymore. By the way, that's the commission God has given to the elders to guard the pulpit of the church. The local elders is their commission. If we had time, we'd spend some time on that. That's the duty of the local elders. The local elders are to guard that church pulpit. And they're to have people in who are preaching the straight message and are preaching revival and reformation. They are to ensure that. Our popes today throughout the world are being closed to people who are preaching revival and reformation. They are closed, the church doors are closed, and the responsibility lies at the feet of the local elders, as well as the conference brethren, of course. People say, I can't do that. I won't be an elder very long. I'll guarantee it. But at least you'll have a clear conscience, dear friends. There is a time when the nominating committee report is read for someone to say, I object. That's what the manual says we're to do even. I object. We don't have to stand up and say why we object. The manual says there is to be another meeting call and you're to go to the nominating committee and share your concerns. Listen, this person that's elected an elder isn't living the truth. Why don't we do it? What if you're the only one? At least there's one, and that's better than none. I know that many of you are doing that. I want to give you encouragement to continue at the right time and place. And when they override you, Let's keep the spirit of Christ. From the cross, Jesus said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But while he was living, he gave the message. Didn't he? We can still love our brethren. We can still love them. But dear friend, there is a time and place to speak up, and we're not doing it. Many people, many people are, but many aren't. Let's make sure that when we do it, we have the spirit of Jesus. Let's not be cantankerous. Let's not be... You know, someone that people are afraid to come around? Let's be loving Christians. I can sit down and eat with anyone in our church. I may not vote for them, but I can eat with them. <laughs> <laughs> Number five. It is time, and I know this is happening here too, but let's, let's increase it. I think Monica has some meetings in her home. It's time that we are getting those who are interested in revival and reformation, as is happening many places here, but if there is even one soul here that is not in a weekly, a weekly revival meeting of some time, don't let that continue. It is time that everybody becomes connected with some weekly revival and reformation meeting. The Bible says we are to draw together so much as we see the day approaching. In Hebrews 10, 25, we must get together. I'll tell you, when Wesley brought about a Reformation in England here, it was done through the small Methodist meetings that met in people's homes, and little halls, here and there. These people were all still Anglicans. They were all still members of the Anglican Church. But they met together in small meetings during the week. And it brought about a great revival. Now the time came when they were kicked out of the Anglican Church. The time came when a new church was formed. We're not going to see a new movement now. The Lord has told us that this movement is going through this movement. The Seventh-day Adventist movement is going through to the end. Amen. But dear friend, we can learn from the methods of John Wesley Amen. and Charles Wesley. Yeah. Ellen White talks a lot about them in Great Controversy. And they're given it as an example for us. <laughs> And we're not going to have a revival and reformation unless we're getting together in prayer and study also. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. Where two or three are gathered together. It may only be two or three. So what? Get at least one other person. If there's no one else in your area, if you're the only one, I'll tell you something you can begin to pray for. You can begin to pray and I believe the Lord will answer this prayer. I believe there's enough promises in the Bible that He'll answer this prayer. Lord, send me one other person that I can meet together with every week to pray and to study for revival and Reformation. One other person. So soon the Lord answers that prayer and there's two of you meeting and studying. You begin to pray and fellowship and you invite people over for dinner and then you invite them to come to your meeting. And pretty soon someone joins and you have three And you all pray for the church. You pray and you study and you invite people. Pretty soon there's four. And pretty soon a revival is taking place in the church. The seeds are being sown and people are being saved. Church members are being saved. People in the world are being saved. And number six. begin to invite people and to work together for occasional larger meetings such as this. I want to tell you once again, there has never yet been a revival and reformation without meetings. There has never been a revival and reformation without meetings where the people meet together. With the children of Israel, God commanded that they should meet together at least three times a year in general revival meetings. Three times a year. I want to tell you, souls are watered when they come together. And they're strengthened. You know, there's one or two out in a church and they're struggling all alone. But you come together and you find 50 or 60 or 100 other people. They're all scattered all over. But you draw together and you strengthen one another, don't you? You gain some strength. I believe that by next time this year, this place should be twice as large if every one of us would bring one other person we'd have twice as many people here. When... Wesley went around, they had both the little meetings, and then they had the big meetings. Isn't that right? We look at all the reformers in all the ages, from the Old Testament time right on up till today. We think of William Miller. How did the 1844 revival take place, dear friends? It was by having meetings and through distributing literature. Books and magazines and meetings and then the little cottage meetings. This is the way that revival has always taken place. And it's the way it's going to take place in the last days too. Well, we're needing a revival. There are some things we can do. We're needing a revival, but what God is needing is some... We're needing a a reformation, but what God is needing is some reformers. Reformers. And today he is calling you to be a reformer. That's a call of God to you today. That's a call that God is giving to each one here is to become a reformer for him in England, in the British Isles, and let that influence spread from here to the countries around. It can spread from here to the world. To become a reformer, you have no idea the influence that you can have Do you know with 12 disciples, Jesus turned the world upside down? Can you imagine if every one of us in this tent today would become a reformer for Jesus Christ? What would happen in England? Do you know what would happen in England if every one of us here in this tent took this message and dedicated ourselves to the Lord to become a a reformer for Him? Oh, there would be a movement set afoot that could not be stopped. No one could stop it. It would lead to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a Jesus' second coming. I want to see that happen, don't you? It can happen here. All God is needing is some people, some reformers, some people who are willing to be with a Christ-like spirit to be martyrs for Him. I'm going to give a call this morning, this afternoon. I'm an evangelist by nature or by experience or something. That's what my calling is, is an evangelist. In fact, Elder Spear and I are going to Berlin to hold some evangelistic meetings after we leave here. And I know this, that there are many people who want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, but they never do it until there is a call to actually do it. They have the desire. But until they make that decision and show that they have made that decision. Somehow they never do it. And so in evangelism, we want to make sure that people are truly ready when they come in. But there's a place where we give a call. And if we don't give a call, people, they go away. It's like the salesman, you know. You show someone a fuller brush. What if you never ask them to buy? There comes a time when you ask people now, you've heard the message. How many are willing to step out on the message? And that's what I want to ask this this afternoon. We have heard the message. How many are willing to act on the message? Now I suppose that we could have, if we had enough room here, we could have a nice choir here sing some beautiful songs while I call people up. We don't have a choir, and I'm not going to call people up, but I am going to call, give a call. And it's a serious call, I want to give a call for each one who would like to dedicate themselves, solemnly dedicate themselves to be a reformer for Jesus Christ within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a serious call. God is calling you, dear friends, to take this step. He is calling you to take this step. But you have to accept the responsibility. When we're in evangelism, everyone is called to keep the Sabbath. Not everyone keeps the Sabbath, but they're all called. And dear friend, I don't know if everyone here will accept the responsibility of being a reformer. But dear friend, you're all called. God is calling you today to be a reformer for Him within this church. Within this church that He gave His life for. Within His remnant special church, He is calling you to be a reformer. Now, a call implies that you have to do something, either to raise your hand or to stand up or to come forward. What I'm going to do this morning is this. I'd like to invite everyone who would like to accept this solemn holy call of the Lord to find somebody else in this crowded tent. It can be right next to you, in front of you, or anywhere. It could be a husband or wife, or it could be somebody. It doesn't matter who it is. But to find somebody else who would like to also accept this call... And kneel down together, the two of you, and dedicate yourselves to the Lord to accept this responsibility and ask for His power and efficiency in becoming a reformer as He would have you to be. It takes some courage, dear friend, courage that most of us don't have. It takes wisdom that most of us don't have. And so I'm going to give that simple call right now. If you would like to accept the call to be a reformer for Jesus Christ, if you aren't sure right now, that's, of course, up to you. I'd rather have you sure. Just step out of the tent and you know, talk with people out there. Maybe someday you'll be ready to accept the call. But if you're ready this morning to accept the call, I'd like to invite you to find somebody else here that you would like to join hands and say, listen, brother, I'm going to pray for you and you pray for me. I'm going to ask and the Lord to help you in this work of Reformer and to dedicate you for this important, holy, apostolic office. And you pray for me. And let's ask for the Lord to seal this commitment and that He will make us powerful Reformers for Him in a humble way. If you'd like to accept that call, why don't you just now stand up where you are and find somebody to uh, pray with you and you can find a place to kneel on the grass or up here or if it's grass as you know you can kne- sit in seats if you can't kneel on the grass wherever when everyone is done just stay where you are don't start talking